everybody. Welcome back to the Yankees Magazine Podcast. I'm Hillary Georgie. Joining me, as always, is Nathan Makaborski. Hello. And John Schwartz. Hello. How's it going, guys? How are you feeling? One week out from baseball season. Starting to come down with the baseball fever, which actually may be pneumonia. It's not a clear... I mean, I'm a little bit nasal right now. I'm not sure if you can tell. It's just baseball fever. That's what it is. My my head is spinning from... The editing process this week was quite... It's Quite been a taxing. lot, especially with a snowstorm that <laughs> yeah. kind of derailed We're, us a little bit. Which snowstorm would that be? Because there were like 17 in the like last a, month. About like 12. Um, so all of them. All of them were bad. Yeah. So squeezing in a April issue and a yearbook and a special opening day commemorative cover that'll be on the April issue. I mean, there's there was a lot going on this week, and uh, we're not quite out of the woods yet, but <laughs> we're getting there. It is funny when you get to that point, though, in, like, late April, when you think back to, like, when we were doing this, literally in the middle of a nor'easter when we're doing this, and it's like, oh, spring, yay, baseball. Man, baseball <laughs> season's already been going on for a month. But it's like, sure doesn't feel like that now. No, it seems still kind of miles and miles away. But. It is not. We're nearly there, and we nearly have the finishing touches on the April issue of Yankees Magazine and the 2018 New York Yankees official yearbook. Yeah, and we're definitely excited about both. Can't wait for both of them to be printed and hitting newsstands. And And out of Nate's hair. (laughs) And then on to the May issue. But... uh, yeah, no, there's there's just so much good stuff in here that I think people are going to love. So we're excited and uh, and exhausted. Exhausted <laughs> is, is a word for it. Uh, coming up next week, we have a very special bonus episode of the podcast where I talk to Al Sanasiri about the cover story of the April magazine and opening day special edition cover, which has Judge and Giancarlo Stanton together. Judge and Giancarlo Stanton? You must be joking. I never would have guessed that. It's, I know. We really went kind of out of left field with this one, (laughs) or right field, I should say. Be on the lookout for that. Al did a special dual interview with the two sluggers, so that'll be a fun one. But in this episode of the podcast, a little bit later, John and I are going to talk about his story about Luis Severino, and then... Would that be... uh... 2018 opening day starter, Luis Severino? That's the same guy. That's the same guy, yeah. Same guy, yeah. That's the one. And then we're also going to have... A bit of my interview with Yankees GM Brian Cashman, which would is, that be 2017 Baseball America Executive of the Year? Brian? Same, same guy. That one, oh, same that. guy. Yeah, gotcha. Interesting how it all worked out that way. I see, I see. Uh, yeah, so that story, all of these stories are in the jam-packed April 2018 issue of Yankees Magazine, which is on sale so soon. Yeah, <laughs> opening day. It'll be on the on the racks at Yankee Stadium. Literally the first day of April. Like we are, we are, we are diving into April. It is not a joke. Is that even true? April second. It's April second. <laughs> Just kidding. It was a joke. It's not. On John with the April Fool's joke. Yeah. We got you. Don't show up to Yankee Stadium on April first. So we're starting we April with the here. first this month. Or are we moving right to the second? <laughs> <laughs> like no, I said, no one editing. Our heads are spinning. It's our been our eyes a are long, crossed. Long week. Here's the thing. Know. Here's the thing, though. Like, let's have a little fun. So. If we're going to get all weirded out by the fact that there's a total snow-covered field a couple hundred yards from us right now, while also there's going to be baseball there in less than a week and a half, why don't we talk about some stuff with the upcoming season? So I'm going to start this through. We're going to make some predictions here. First things first, we know that Luis Severino is going to be... Hold on one second, John. What do we get if we predict these things right? 
That's a solid question. Hmm. Because I want there to be some skin in this game. I I don't compete for nothing. And there's a lot to lose, you know. I exactly. mean, if you make some prediction and it falls flat, you're gonna, you know, people are gonna be making fun of you all year yeah, long. Gotta get the tweets. Ugh. I don't need the tweets, you know. <laughs> the tweets are a problem. <laughs> wow, do we have to like get back to people with like the stakes? I think we should. All right, you know, we we have a couple of days to think of the stakes. In the meantime, we'll just start making predictions willy nilly. And obviously the value of the stakes will depend on how well i think i did in this right. i'll tell you what john if you nail these predictions free your book free <gasps> yep. oh. my very own your very own a 20 dollars value right there <laughs> guys i think i have an extra i got this one <laughs> so, so okay we, we already mentioned luis severino starting opening day who will have the most starts among yankees pitchers this year hmm. nate hmm well i tell you i would like to see uh a full season out of, out of Sonny Gray. I know he's currently slated to be the fourth starter, but let's say, you know, he goes out there and, and has a full season and doesn't spend any time on the DL. I would love to see what he's able to accomplish in pinstripes. And, you know, having spent a little time with him during the off season, I feel Read like all he's... about it in the April magazine of Yankees magazine. Also in the April magazine. <laughs> Sonny Gray feature. I know that he's uh, been working hard and, and preparing to, to do just that, um, to pitch all season long here. So I'll be keeping an eye on him and, and be pulling for him to take the hill every fifth game, and uh, I'll go with Sonny. Hillary. I think it's going to be Severino himself. I wanted to, you know, take a, take a flyer on Masahiro Tanaka because he's been pretty reliable. You got a lot of good starts out of him. But I think this is Sevi's year again. I think he's going to show us that he's going to be – an ace of this staff. He's going to take them out every fifth day, and he's going to dominate. John? Nate, I agree with you. I'm saying Sonny Gray. I just think that with Severino, I'm inclined to say Severino, too. I'm not. I'm going to stay away from Tanaka. I'm going to stay away from Montgomery. I'm going to stay away from Sabathia. Um, nothing, no knock on those guys. I, I was between Severino and Sonny Gray. I could see them wanting to limit a little bit of Severino's innings, especially after last year. Yeah, so, he had a pretty heavy workload there deep into October as well, so... I believe in I believe in Severino. I think I think that's very fair. Okay, home run leader on this team, Hillary. Hillary, you start. Oh, the home run leader. It could literally be anybody on this in this lineup, basically. But I think. Well, <laughs> maybe, maybe maybe not anybody. But I think. Don't you steal Tereus? That's my answer. <laughs> Tyler, Tyler Austin Romine. <laughs> uh, I think. I think it's gonna be. I think it's gonna be Giancarlo. Giancarlo, one vote for Giancarlo. He's gonna kind of mash his way through Yankee Stadium in the AL East this year. I'm gonna say Judge. Um, I've I've literally zero doubts about Stanton's ability to go to all fields, but we did see Judge do that last year, and obviously. You know, if you can go right field at Yankee Stadium, you're going to do a lot better than going left field at Yankee Stadium. Not that either one of these guys is scraping the back of the wall, but Judge did 52 last year. I think that I, I think he's more likely to do 52 again than Stanton is to do 59. So I'm going to say Judge. Yeah, I could see you know Stanton needing to have a little bit of an adjustment period. You know, getting to know all these new ballparks and new pitchers. Um, so you know, I don't want to. I want to be different. So. I'll, no, I'll throw Greg Bird out there. Maybe I'll, I'll say I'll, I'll look like a genius in September if I end up being right. But uh, you know, you got I mean, that sweet left-handed swing. I mean, how great would it be to see see Greg Bird put together a full season at first base and do what he's capable of? I mean, the stretches that he's had when he's been hell, he have just been torrid at times. So uh, I'll say Bird. 
Gary Sanchez is sitting there being like, guys, hey, I know, what I know. do I got to do? Excuse me. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Who has the most starts at third base this year? Oh, geez. I'm going to start this one, and I'm going to go – I'm, I'm I'm going to go basic and say Brandon Drury. That was my answer. It could still be your answer. Brandon Drury. I, I think, think. I, I want to say Andrew Har. I just I think that I think it's going to be close. I think Andrew Har is going to be up and get his share of it. But the fact the some of the moves that the team has made make it hard to find a place for Andrew Har, an easy place for Andrew Har. I don't know if you guys saw today. He actually in a minor league game played first, and I think that today being obviously I should say Thursday. I think that's actually an interesting possibility for him to find a role on the team. But I think it also says the fact that they're just not ready to bring him up as a backup third baseman or bring him up to get rid of Brandon Drury yet. So I think I, Brandon Drury's got an opportunity. Third base is his natural position. I think he's going to do well. I think Drury's going to get the, the lion's share of the, the duties over there in the hot corner. Yeah, I mean, again, I, I want to I be different, but... You guys have kind of sold me. Those are good arguments. <laughs> and, and there's really, I mean, that's like one of the big question marks going into the season is is who's going to play third. Um, so I'm with you guys. I think it's kind of Drury's job to lose. But, uh, you know, this being the Yankees, who knows? Maybe it's somebody who's not even on the roster this, right now. This is true. Nate, same question, starting with you, second base. I mean, Neil Walker is a professional. He's a veteran. He's brought in to play second. So my crystal ball is, <laughs> is probably – no more uh, clear than anybody else's at this point, but I guess I'd have to say Walker as we sit here on March 22nd. And yeah, I mean, it's a totally unfair question at this point, but Hillary. I think Labor Torres is going to come up and he's going to make them play him. I think he's going to be too good to keep in AAA and he's going to figure out a way to get on this field for a lot of the season. So I'm going to go with, I'm going with Glaber. I'm going Glaber, too. I think that Neil Walker is a great signing for the Yankees and will probably be a great trade trip for the Yankees um, somewhere down the road because I, I just think that Glaber needs to play. I think they realize that. Who has the most at-bats out of the DH spot this year, Hillary? It's going to be Stanton because I think Judge proved last year that he is a phenomenal right fielder. And that's not to say that Stanton isn't a phenomenal right fielder, but I think the plays that Judge was making out there – I think he's going to see a bit more time in the field. He's also a little bit younger, a little bit less of uh, an injury history than Stanton has. So I think Stanton gets the bulk of the DH spots. I I 100% agree. I think the other thing is for all the talk about wanting one of them to play left field, especially with Ellsbury out, I think you do need Brett Gardner in left field on this team. I think he he has to be your leadoff hitter right now. He's one of the best left fielders in the game, he, the ground he covers, the plays he makes, the the way he takes the caroms off the wall in our left field at Yankee Stadium, which is not an easy left field to play. Yeah. I, I think I he's think Gardy, the, the way the team is constituted, needs to play. So I'm saying Stan. Yeah, I mean, Gardy won a gold glove two years ago. Last year, he didn't make a single error. Somehow didn't win a gold glove. Um, and I think the you know the execs here in the the organization view Stan as the DH. You know they felt that that was a need like they didn't get enough production out of that slot last year and went out looking for a dh and happened to grab somebody who just, a, just an mvp <laughs> who had about Not 132 rbi last year and hit 59 home runs so uh i think you know they view stan as a guy who's gonna get the lion's share of those at bats what yeah. else you got john anything else i think i'm good any questions you could well what's your prediction for where the Yankees end up at the end of the season. Come on, the big one. Yeah. I mean, the million-dollar question. Where? Wait 
Is there actually a million dollars on the line, Nathan? Because that's going to color my answer. Um, let me check my wallet. <laughs> uh, all right, it's the ten cent <laughs> question. <laughs> the seventeen dollar question. <laughs> Hillary. Oh man, I think this team has so much potential, and I think if things break the right way, everybody stays healthy, the rotation stays strong, the lineup produces like it can produce. I think the World Series is by no means out of the question. I think this is a World Series contending club, and it would not surprise me one iota if they wound up parading at the Canyon of Heroes come November. I'm going to say a very conservative 97-win season. If you told me they won 118 at the end of the season, <laughs> I, I'm, honestly, I'm looking at the roster, and it's like that could happen. Like, I mean, we're doing all this stuff right now in the 98 team. There is zero question that this is a more talented team than the 98 team was. I mean, there's just no question. Everything went right for the 98 team. They did everything perfectly, basically. But, you know, there's just no reason this team shouldn't win. Three guys on this team could slump at the exact same time, and the lineup is still terrifying. Mm -hmm. The pitching staff, you know, it's not uh, maybe, you know, exactly what you would want if you had an unlimited budget and everything like that, and you could just get any person you want in there. But, you know, those days you're throwing Sevy out, those days you're throwing Sonny Gray out, those days you're throwing Tanaka out. You know, CC was awesome last year. Montgomery, as a rookie last year, was extremely impressive. I mean, one through five, I, I don't think that there's anything to worry about there, per se, and the bullpen's crazy. Not to mention, AAA's roster is full of potential right, yeah. superstars. So so I don't I, I don't see the losses on the team. So, you know, you're saying the World Series is a possibility. Look, the playoffs are a total crapshoot, like they always have been. Again, we mentioned the 98 team. You might as well mention the 2001 Mariners team as, you know, what happens when you're also incredible and stacked in the regular season and nothing comes of it. But I'll say 97 wins. I would be less surprised by 118 wins than I would be by 81 wins. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, I'm a bad person to ask this question because I think we're going to win the World Series every year. <laughs> you Nathan's, ask me this on, Nathan's a fan. Yeah, I mean, if you ask me, you know, on opening day every year, I'm going to give you the same answer. But you look at this team and there's really, I mean, there's so much to like. And, you know, when you look at, the last few post seasons and what the teams who have gone far have had. I mean, the bullpen has become such an increasingly important part of successful teams and the Yankees have the potential to have the best bullpen in baseball. As John said, I mean, the, the lineup is just stacked one through nine on paper and there's reinforcements at the ready. Should we need them down in the minors? So, and I think just the, experience of playing such intense games in the postseason last year and coming up a little short but just getting that feel for like what October baseball is all about and you know coming back this year with a hunger to go even further you know I think everybody's kind of got their eye on the prize and I know I for one am very excited to see how it plays out it's gonna be it's gonna be a year it's gonna be there's gonna be baseball almost Definitely 162 times. Yeah, probably. <laughs> Possibly, you know, more for the Yankees. We'll we'll hope and cross our fingers, and we'll be here for all of it. So stick with us. Follow us on at Yanks Magazine on Twitter. Uh, please feel free to uh, make fun of our predictions. Add your own predictions. Send us your predictions. Email us, podcast at yankees.com, and pick up that April issue of Yankees Magazine and the 2018 official yearbook when you come to Yankee Stadium for baseball in less than 
two weeks. It's going to be crazy. Uh, stick around. Brian Cashman is coming right up with uh, some pretty interesting answers to some questions I posed to him. And then John and I talk about SETI. Hi, this is Aaron Judge. You're listening to the Yankees Magazine Podcast. For the second year in a row, I sat down with General Manager Brian Cashman for a lengthy interview about the state of the team and the highs and lows of being in the business of baseball. During our hour-long chat in Brian's office, his phone or his computer dinged with messages no less than a dozen times, and you'll hear some of those in this interview. Brian was candid about his thought process in getting guys like Didi Gregorius and Giancarlo Stanton, and about how frustrating it can be to watch players struggle through slumps or injuries. Here's some of our conversation. What do you love about it? And how is it different from when you first started? You know, I like the action. You know, I like the planning aspect of things, trying to construct rosters that would lead to ultimate success or various levels of success <laughs> if you're not the last team standing. Those challenges, you know, are what drive me, trying to find a way, you know, to win. It's a challenge, but it's fun, and, and you know, I still have a lot of passion for it. It's changed a lot because... There's a whole new world order with analytics that obviously entered the game and has dominated now you know, offices throughout the game, and it's made us better at our decision-making. We're more efficient with our decisions. We're more effective with our decisions because we have better information that we can rely on prior to making decisions that involve ownership money. So you know, it's helped exponentially. But one of the things I'm proud about is guiding the Yankees into the new world order of analytics and performance science and mental skills those departments didn't exist when i first started here how much of a rivalry is there between gms you guys are all after the one exact same goal so how much does that fuel you and how does it make working together difficult because you do have to work together so kind of i guess explain that relationship to me where you're i want all the wins i want all the wins somebody but with somebody well i want (laughs) All the American League East teams especially lose. I want <laughs> then secondarily the rest of our American League competition to lose. And, and you know, an interleague play, but the National League teams win all the time, you know. So, yeah, there is, I mean, ultimately the job is to win and win every game possible. And, you know, the flip side of that is somebody's got to lose. And uh, and I want to make the playoffs. Or we want to make the playoffs and hopefully as a division uh, winner, if not a wild card. And, that yeah, that's that's competition. It's it's in its simplest form. And so I root for, you know, I appreciate when people have a game plan, they have the discipline to execute it, and then the results follow. I appreciate that from afar. If somebody has a good, consistent game plan, they've set up a tremendous shop, meaning front office, and, and they've gone about their business the right way. I got great respect for that, you know, whether it's in our sport or other sports. You can separate the competition uh, with respect. I don't respect, you know, how some people go about their business, you know, in a, in a bad way. So you root against those people even further. But I don't have to root for somebody, but I can respect and appreciate good work when you see it. But the competition makes you still want to go head-to-head and, and, and overcome all comers. So We talked before last season about how... You kind of had to become a seller for one of the first times. Can you take me through how frustrating that was? But also, you saw, you reaped the results and the benefits of it this year. So what's that kind of Well, that's part of, like, you know, you have to 
it's all about a plan, mm-hmm. you know, a strategy, and making and connecting as many good decisions together throughout a process. Uh, which, if you know, you're never going to be perfect, but if you can string along enough good decisions, then the results will bear fruit over time. And so that that small window of opportunity of selling was, was obviously us assessing where we were in a given circumstance and and what would the best next decision be and and I felt and we felt very strongly that given where we were selling off certain assets at at a certain price tag was vitally important to us and the healthiest franchises I would think and and businesses are the ones that are in complete alignment from ownership all the way through to their top level executives down and that was an example of us despite having a lot of discussions about what we should or shouldn't be doing, Hal Steinmeier gave us the green light and, and the sign of the cross to move forward with selling off assets at that time, which showed we were, as a franchise, completely aligned in what was the best next step for us. And I think that's when the magic can really happen, when examples of alignment are 110% pure. And they were, and thankfully it served us well. So, you know, Hal Steinmeier is very careful. He wants all the information before he makes a decision. He takes great time and effort and angst before he actually green lights anything and uh, so I know it was a very difficult process for everybody involved including ownership but at the end of the day I think with all decisions you know it comes down to what's in our best interest of our fans and I think our fans have been served very well by that you know process. From the outside looking in I think people were surprised by how quickly you were able to turn the team around. People were expecting a longer rebuild and you alluded to this before, it's all about having a plan. Were you expecting the plan to go so well so quickly? Was that always what it was going to be? Or were you a little bit surprised at how quickly this team came together this year? Uh, I was surprised. We had a lot of things go well for us. You don't hit on everything typically. And so like everything else, you have to be good. You have to be healthy and you have to be lucky. So um, hopefully those things stay in our favor as we move forward. But yeah, it came around quicker, you know, than... Uh, than I would have predicted privately, and I'm happy for that, clearly. But, but yeah, I can't tell you in honesty that, you know, uh, after 2016 that I felt that we would be Game 7 of the ALCS in 2017. How hard is it to ask people to trust you, ask ownership, ask the fans to say, no, we're hanging on to this guy for a reason? I don't look at it as, like, trust me uh, <laughs> as much as I hope. We're right. We're placing informed bets and praying that the payoff is going to come because, you know, every time we place a bet, it's not always going to sometimes what's, I don't gamble, but it, what, it comes up snake eyes sometimes, oh, yeah. you, you crap out. So it's it's more like it's a highly stressful, you're making informed decisions, you're standing by those decisions, and you're praying over time that they're going to work the way you need them to work, desperately need them to work, and in an environment that it's always, it's a sport and things change, and yeah, I've never been thought of it in a way like, just trust me, just trust me, as much as we got to trust the process, Mm -hmm. and then let it take us where it's going to take us, because we have so many people and looks from an analytical perspective, from a development perspective, from a pro scouting perspective, that that are forming our positions, and we just have to give it time to play out, and that the process and the discipline behind that process has served us well. So more times than not, we have benefited from it. 
and so that's why we trust the process. But from a fan's perspective, you know, I get it. You know, fans are fanatics, and they don't trust anything other than <laughs> wins and losses and, and good performance versus right. bad. How much does your gut play into something? Never. Or are you always just going off of what these yeah, guys are I telling you? Yeah, I don't like, you? There's to me, there's no room for gut decisions in any way, shape, or form. You have to make the most on behalf of ownership you have to, because these are high-end assets that are very valuable pieces and vitally important decisions in franchises throughout the country that there's no room for gut decisions. You have to do everything in your power to make the most informed decision you can make. And then pray it works. <laughs> I think if we could go through a couple of players on the roster and start with Didi Gregorius. I think he's kind of a linchpin of this team. He's kind of the guy, in my view, and correct me if I'm wrong, he was kind of the, the turning of the tide where you got younger at a really important position and then a lot of other positions followed. So take me through the thought process of, of acquiring him and what you thought he was going to bring and how he's measured up. Well, obviously, unfortunately, we did not have an internal candidate, mm-hmm. you know, when Derek Jeter ultimately retired. So that was a, a self-created problem. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not that we didn't want to have somebody ready right. to plug and play. It's just sometimes it, things don't work out that way. So we were in a bad spot. And so we had targeted a number of players throughout the game that we had an interest in, and Didi was one of them. Our pro scouting department was pushing strongly. Tim Naring absolutely you know, was in love with this player mm-hmm. and believed in his ceiling and was pounding the desk about this is a guy if we can get, we must. Um, our analytics department supported that assessment as well. So we had a, a marriage throughout our baseball ops about him being a target player for us. I couldn't match up, though. Every time I dealt with the then GM of the Arizona Diamondbacks, Dave Stewart, and Arizona at that time had a surplus of middle infielders, but I could not seem to match up with Dave on anything involving Didi. He was open for discussing and moving Didi. He just didn't seem to like anything I was selling. I pivoted, and I had an internal idea that I explored, which benefited us in the end because we it resulted in us getting Didi. I knew how much we had this young pitcher, as everybody knows now, Shane Green, that came up and he had a good arm he's now a closer uh, but as a starter and had a pretty dominating second half for us that prior year and one of his games was dominant against the Detroit Tigers mm-hmm. so I knew the Tigers extremely valued him we did too you know we, we, we valued Shane Green a lot and it was an area of weakness for us the starting rotation and, and Shane was being considered strongly as a member of that rotation but ultimately you have to give to get and so I called Dave Dombrowski up then Tigers general manager and said listen I've been trying to get this guy for a long time they had no need for an infielder Mm -hmm. in in Detroit so it's not like I was revealing some great secret that I had to worry that they were going to trade for and keep I said if you can get me D.D. Gregorius from the Diamondbacks I will give you Shane Green and he he was salivating you know because they had how much they valued Shane Green and recognized him as a young controllable cheap in terms of payroll important piece so within 72 hours, he got it done. So he was able to accomplish with Dave Stewart what I was unable to accomplish today. So we wound up doing a three-way deal. Yeah, obviously, I'm very thankful. So it was not an easy decision because we did value Shane Green a great deal, actually. But it certainly was one of the many pivotal decisions during this process that we were made because you know, I was taught years gone by about team building and pounding the desk of how vitally important on the position player side you need a you need to be strong up the middle from catcher to middle infield to center field and we had a massive hole at the most important position on the field absent of the catcher at shortstop so I had to wrestle with 30 starts from uh, Shane Green or 150 plus starts from a everyday shortstop and and when you just boil it down to that in its simplicity even though we're robbing 
Peter to pay Paul by losing a rotation piece. That's how we based our decision. What can you tell me about what it's been like to see Sanchez grow up? I know he took some time in the minors. He was in the minor leagues for a long time. You said no to a lot of trades involving him. What was it like to, to be patient with him and to cultivate him and then to see him? Yeah, he's a, he's a dynamic player with skills on both sides of the ball and you know one of the best catchers in the entire game at 24 years of age and a big difference maker for us uh we're lucky to have him and there's a great reward to watch a player that you know i remember flying in to uh, to authorize watching him work out down in in uh, boca chica in the dominican republic and then authorizing on behalf of ownership sizable bonus of three million dollars to secure him mm-hmm. and then um and then, yes, watch the trials and tribulations uh, of his development program and, and then also having people in the pro scouting arena this cross-checking uh, this player as he's going through the system of the he's a must-keep and any, any trade offers swat away saying, no, 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 do not trade this guy. He's going to be an above-average player for a long time and impact and difference maker because people don't have at that position the firepower at the bat that this guy is going to bring every day. Yeah, it's it, with great pride to see where he's at and in his career and the star he's become. Talk to me about Severino. Came up, was great. Came up again, was terrible. <laughs> and then moved to the bullpen. When you move a guy to the bullpen and he has success, but you look at him as a starter, is there ever a struggle, like maybe we shouldn't take him out of the bullpen, maybe we should? How do you manage that situation it was unmanageable Sebi has been the number one pitching prospect in this franchise you know for a while now and he's had nothing but success so the only aberration you know so he had nothing but success his entire minor league career and even his maiden voyage in 2015 in the second half of his major league career where he was an effective highly effective starter force and helped us make the playoffs as a wild card and then 2016 hit and it was a problem and we suspected part of the problem was he went and had a massive weight lifting program on his own in the Dominican prior to the 2016 season. And that this is when your gut comes into play. Like, what's different? Why it, like is his pitching not good? Why is his stuff different? The power is there, but the effectiveness of the changeup is gone. The slider is not consistent. The fastball command is off. All things are off. A couple things you ask. Is it health? He checked every box on his health. Um, he was effective out of the rota- out of the bullpen, which is anybody go to the pen and be successful, you're a starter. So that's not hard. So at his young age, the media was like, leave him alone, leave him in the pen, leave him alone, leave him in the pen. And our attitude was, no, you know, this guy's not even a finished product yet, and you don't pull the plug on this type of ability. He's had nothing but success with a three-pitch mix for quite a long time outside of this small sample size of 16. So we... Turned a deaf ear to all the noise out there in the public arena via fans, call, talk show hosts, uh, and people in the media taking positions on it. We're pushing for him to be an effective weapon out of the pen. We always knew we could fall back on that in the future down the line if he continued to show he couldn't start. But it just wasn't that time and place for that type of decision to be had. So, you know, we trusted the process, stayed with, stayed the course, and he rewarded us with that performance last year and being a Cy Young candidate. Greg Bird has when he's on the field he's been productive but he's had trouble being on the field how frustrating is it to know that a guy who can potentially impact a lineup every single day is on the sidelines because of an injury i don't know if it's frustrating it's it it comes with the territory i mean you've got nine positions that are taking the field every day and that doesn't include the pitching staff and it's a con this is a high-end 
contact sport and part of an organization's pedigree is obviously depth and it's our job to make sure we have insurance policies lined up because players will go down that's Mm -hmm. the fact so it's frustrating when it's a high caliber player because you're going to miss that you know you're going to be downgrading typically with whoever you're replacing with to hold the fort it's frustrating only the fact that you know that you have a great talented player that can impact that one column for you you can't access while they're down but you know birdie got back like we you know we did not trade for anybody at the deadline to fill that position even though we had that need because we we knew he was coming back mm-hmm. and we just had to wait on it yeah, but you saw in the postseason especially that home run off of miller you know how impactful he can be what can you say about Judge and the way he became just this household name this year? When you first signed him, you knew he was a, a specimen, and you knew he was going to you know, hit some home runs. What can you say about the year that he had, and was it anything like you ever imagined? I don't think anybody saw that coming when Damon Oppenheimer and, and his domestic amateur program made the decision to select Aaron Judge. It was a high-risk, high-reward type decision that you knew you had an extremely powerful athlete that was capable of a lot of things. But despite all the ceiling that he had, no one would have ever expected what he just did in his first full season in the big leagues, eclipsing the all-time rookie record for home runs as a (laughs) right-handed batter or, you know, whatever the, you'd have to fill in the blank, whatever his (laughs) accolades were, no one saw that type of MVP caliber contribution mm-hmm. coming, especially in the very first full season. And the mental makeup, people were, myself included, just blown away by how mentally strong he was, how capable he was of handling all the situations, including the slump that he went through. Yeah. How much does the mental makeup of a player play into how well they do here and, and how you go after somebody like it's a part of the package because uh, you know we have a mental skills program headed up by Chad Bowling, and that lends his contributions are towards the major league staff, towards player development, you know him and his department, as well as towards the amateur scouting arena. So mm-hmm. they go out and interview potential uh, draft picks for us, as well as judges being one of them. I can't tell you how much in Damon Oppenheimer's case that factored into his ultimate decision when he had the three picks in the back of the first round, you know where we took Jigailo, Clark, and and Judge, Chicago eventually netted us in the trade. Mm-hmm. Chapman, uh, Clarkin netted us in a trade. Canely and Robertson, and uh, and Judge is here. So it's been a very successful three picks for us, uh, impacting our major league roster in various ways. But I do know that Damon got his physical assessment by his pro scout, by his amateur scouts. He got his mental assessment by the department, and I think everybody would agree without question that he's one of the more exceptional leaders that we have and an unquestionable makeup. So, uh, you know, he's got unique skill sets in all aspects. A lot of people would say that the Yankees did not necessarily need a Giancarlo Stanton. Why did you think that the Yankees needed him? Why did you want him? In terms of team building, I would say we did need Giancarlo Stanton. In terms of team building, my job always is to hope your strengths remain your strengths and attack areas of weakness. And 2017's team, which was one of the more one of the strongest offensive teams in the game last year, which is you know we did have two areas of weakness, which was well really three: third base, DH, and first base. First base was a problem all year, only because Greg Bird was injured. Once he's back and healthy, which he is, and he did come back late in the year, he was productive as as expected. So that got solved internally uh, by having a healthy Greg Bird. 
the DH was a problem for the most part, you know, and we had did not have the production out of the position we would have hoped. And so the Stanton uh, acquisition now solidifies whether he's in the outfield uh, and Judge is DHing at times, or if Judge is in the outfield and he's DHing at times, it gives us a massive weapon of success. And so I feel we've significantly attacked an area of weakness in our lineup uh, with an exponentially impactful <laughs> player. So I would disagree that we didn't need Giancarlo Stan. I would say that you know we just didn't expect to to go top shelf when we went to market, but that opportunity did exist, so we reached high and with ownership's blessing was able to get a very significant, hopefully impactful player. And a guy like Giancarlo Stanton, a lot of people are saying that it's just the Yankees being the Yankees. They're going out and getting whoever they want to get because they can. What do you say to the haters like that? Do you care at all? I don't care. I mean, make any difference to you at all? And nobody said that when David Price went to the Red Sox. Or nobody said that when Jason Hayward went to the Cubs mm-hmm. or John Lester went to the Cubs or, or no one said that when Justin Verlander was traded to the Astros last summer. That the does the Yankees being the Yankees. Mm-hmm. I mean, I can give you name after name after name of players, big players with big impact get signed or traded a lot and you're only allowed 25 spots in the roster so the Yankees have not been hoarding um, (laughs) all great talent throughout the game but what we have done differently recently is we have cultivated some of the game's great young talent which allows every now and then some splurge shopping or via trade or free agency. And, and because of the success that Gary Sanchez and Didi Gregorius and Aaron Judge and Greg Bird and Aaron Hicks and, and Severino and uh, Montgomery, because of some of that young, high-end, con- con- contributing-type, cheap, salaried players, it's allowed us to import someone as significant of Stanton with the contract exposure he has. So we're lucky. And we're fortunate, but we have not been those, you know, big spending, grabbing Yankees that uh, those type of comments would make you believe. Why did you want to get a new manager to come in here to work with these players who had success, but now you're looking for something different? I mean, we're looking for, I think, we're definitely looking for the same result in terms Mm -hmm. of impacting the win column. We just felt it was the time and place for a new voice, for a new engagement, for a fresh start. I have tough decisions to make always, and as great a manager as Joe Girardi is and will continue to be, you know, there maybe there is an expiration period to a leadership effectiveness from the dugout after a period of time, and, and after ten years, you know, there was a sense coming from within that clubhouse that that there was time for a change, and so I reacted to that without question, and and uh, and opened it up to you know lead us there and boom and uh, certainly hopeful that it'll be impacting us in a positive way and we'll see where it takes us I mean my job is to improve make sure that we're we're putting you know the New York Yankees and their fan base deserve to have you know the best opportunities at all levels at all times and so you know with that I wasn't afraid of making a very difficult choice were there any surprises or fears going into the process of yes. finding a new manager no what question well, the fears are you don't want to make a mistake you know again Every time you go to marketplace, whether it's a trade, whether it's free agency, whether it's a hiring of an employee, whether it's a manager, coach, scout, front office personnel, what have you, every decision is made with, is this going to make us better as a franchise? Does this get us closer to representing the best franchise we can possibly be as we move forward? And and that's, you know, it takes a lot of careful planning and uh, effort. And uh, it was a very deliberate 
slow interview process that uh, I even I think reading the reactions via the media they were even getting frustrated how long it was taking and I was like it's going to take as long as it takes until we get the right outcome because you know we weren't going to rush into it you know we went into it with an open mind and surprised you know about who what the candidate that ultimately you know won out like if you asked me in the beginning I would have that surprised me, but I'm real comfortable with the decision I made based on how the process went. And again, it goes back to it's to set up a, a, a strong process. You trust that process and the results. It served us well, and the results have followed in a consistent way. And, and I expect it'll be that way with uh, with Aaron. I'm, I'm very proud of the fact yeah, I've been here as general manager now. This is my 21st year, so it's something to be said that I've only worked with two managers thus far. So I don't make change lightly, mm-hmm. and uh, and so far I've had a chance to win a championship with with Joe Torre. I've had a chance to win a championship with Joe Girardi, and I am going to do everything in my power to be in a position that hopefully sooner than later say I had a chance to win a world championship with Aaron Boone. What did you like about Aaron Boone? How did he blow you away in this process? In every level. His content, his baseball intellect, his ability to communicate and relate and engage with all personnel, his connections throughout baseball, his open-mindedness and willingness to pull information from all sources. I was extremely impressed. You know, we walked out of that meeting and one of my personnel that was part of the process with me was like, could that be real? (laughs) You know, and uh, I was like, well, we might find out. And sure enough, we continued our process and went through, you know, whatever amount more interviews we had left and then circled back and and had a lot of dialogue and, and it was a unanimous decision of who was the number one candidate based on the interview process. And we had a lot of really good baseball people that we interviewed. Aaron Boone has a Yankees legacy all to his own already, and he was only here for a short time, but he has one of the most memorable moments in recent Yankees history, and he could have sailed away on that for the rest of his life, and instead he's kind of coming back into this lion's den. What does it say about him that he's willing to jump in and take this job in this huge market with this team specifically? He loves to compete. He's got some unfinished business. He, you know, I don't recall him having a world championship you know, in any capacity, he got into a World Series and put us there with his home run against uh, against the Red Sox that play the Marlins, but the Marlins beat us. So some unfinished business, and so hopefully collectively we can all find a way to size that finger of his for with some hardware over time. I just don't. I think he loves to compete. Uh, you know, he's a competitor and and he's addicted to it. He was constantly being pulled back to the field of how can I get back into that game of competition against a, an opponent on the field and finding a way to beat beat their ass. What's been the most fun part of being the GM of this team? Most fun? I mean, bottom line, it's all, the only fun comes is when you're winning. Mm-hmm. Um, that's that's really it. It's a horrible chair to be sitting in when you're not having success. And it's, it's a great chair to be sitting in with a front row seat if you're a part of success. So that's, that's the trick. We're all trying to be massively successful, trying to find a way to, to be that and maintain it. Hi, this is Tommy Canely. For more stories like the ones you've been hearing about, subscribe to Yankees Magazine by visiting yankees.com slash publications or by calling 800-GO-YANKS. Hi, John. How are you? Great, Hillary. How are you? Uh, I'm pretty excited about opening day. How are you feeling? It's kind of wild, you know, like... <laughs> Spring training, I think on every single podcast we've done during spring training, I've made a comment about how long spring training is. <laughs> it's almost over. <laughs> yeah, no, camp breaks on Sunday, essentially. Yep. 
and then there's going to be real baseball, and it's not going to snow. Fingers crossed. I mean, they're starting in Toronto, so let's not... Uh, and you're going to be there, right, John? I am going to be there. I'm going to be there to, uh, you know, see my April story uh, in action. I know. I- Mr. Luis Severino getting the opening day start. How do you feel about Sevi? Tell me a little bit about... You spent some time with Sevi in the DR. I did, and it's sometimes hard when you go on the road for stories like this because when you commit to, you know, you're going to the Dominican Republic to spend time with Luis Severino. And what you really want to do is get the flavor of the Dominican Republic, get the flavor of home, the sense of community he has, the things that are important to him back there. And I tried. Pretty successfully. Yeah, there, there, there's stuff about that in the story, but just in talking to him, the one thing that was clear was that that couldn't be the story. The story had to be the 2017 postseason. One one start in particular. Well, you know, sure, but I'll, I'll actually say two starts in particular. And that was kind Fair. of what I found interesting about the whole thing was the wild card game was a nightmare. Mm-hmm. Um, he was terrible. He was absolutely terrible. He is candid about how terrible he was nothing worked he was way too amped up usually i'll say you know i find you know too hyped or too calm to be a really soft measure that that, that doesn't really feel edifying in Mm -hmm. any way when you hear someone say like oh i was just too hyped up that doesn't really make sense as like why i I think in this case actually louis severino was simply too hyped up i think louis severino was ineffective because he was too hyped up yeah there was one line in your story that i think really struck a chord with me it was this becomes just another game because he got another game. Right. And, and that was the thing. It didn't look like it. Yeah. <laughs> he he left that wild card. I mean, look, you know, backstory here. You know, I'm sitting next to you during the wild card game. <laughs> and I think my prediction before the game was if they get through the first inning unscathed, the Yankees are going to win. Literally one pitch later, you're like, oh, okay. Good right. night. But, Season's over. But then... But then... <laughs> but then... They did get through the first inning unscathed because the second inning started... With Even, a tie game. Right. <laughs> and that was, it was just so crazy, like, to go back. And, you know, so I went down to the DR, and I had an amazing time there, and really got to do a lot of interesting stuff with him. And I came back, and having spoken to him a lot about these postseason games, I just, you know, sat down and watched both of them again. So the, there's a wild card game, and then there's game, f- his next start, game four of the DS. And it's worth noting also, he was good the rest of the postseason. He wasn't. Great, not as good as he was in Game 4, but he was perfectly, you know, good. And just sitting there and watching these again, certainly knowing what happens in them, it was remarkable just watching the way that stadium just collapsed on itself, essentially during the wild card game. You know, you just, that first home run happens, and it's like, oof, not the start we wanted. And then a couple of batters later, it's just like, how bad is this going to get? And I mean, you almost lose sight of the fact, you know, he gave up three runs, but he left with two men on like I mean it could have been a five run five runs runs, one out and then you have the turnaround of the Gardner walk and I mean it's like literally I went back there and I'm trying to think in my head has there ever been a more dramatic at bat a more meaningful at bat that didn't involve a single swing and I'm not sure I had a few of of those in the postseason for sure this was this big one but you felt and I'm sure you remember this you felt as the count started working its way back up and it was only six pitches but it felt I thought if you would have asked me I would have guessed it was longer I would have guessed it was a ten pitch at bat yeah it was six pitches but you felt from four five six like the stadium started breathing it did and it was just like okay you know it is kind of early in this game and one thing that I didn't get to get in 
there's sometimes when you get like a quote from somebody and you're like, well, that sounds awfully convenient. I wonder if it's true. I actually got from a lot of the different guys on the team. Basically, it was Rob Thompson, I think, um, the former bench coach. And his message to the team pregame was, we might give up some runs early. Remember, it's a long game. And they all said, like, you know, they came back in from that, you know, three runs. Well, you know, yep, we, we might give up some runs early, but it's a long game. I, I really, I, I liked the way that I was able to really hit on just how different Luis Severino's winter would have been if they don't come back there, or even if they do come back and still lose the game, mm-hmm. you know, because all the things that happened from the point 14 minutes into that night when he left, you know, he had nothing to do. The team moved on, Correct. but not because, you know, Severino got it together or anything like that. I mean, he was out. Yeah. And yet, because, you know, Didi Gregorius hits a home run and Gardner hits a home run and all these things, you know, because of that, he got to play another day. Right. It's so hard to speculate on how that would have affected somebody like Severino. I, having talked to Severino myself and done a story on Severino, I think he clearly would have used it as motivation, but I think he clearly is already using it as motivation, regardless of the fact that he got another game. I think that wild card disaster is what's going to stick in his head for a long time until he can put a ring on his finger, you know? And you watch him. I mean, you, you watch him in that game four then. And, you know, he starts off very calm. Um, he starts off his first pitch in the wildcard game was 100. His first pitch in game four was 96. And you just, like, you also see in his eyes, you know, he, he, you know, gets the three outs, one, two, three, and just comes off the mound, you know, very quietly and calmly walking toward, you know, okay, this is, this is, this is back to normal. And then you can, like, watch it progress with every single inning that goes by. His reaction as he gets to the end of the inning, it just gets louder and louder and louder. And you see in the sixth, he kind of, like, goes crazy. And then in the seventh, and we probably ran across different stories and photo essays and yearbook bios of Luis Severino. We probably ran a version of this picture some 14 different times this month. <laughs> it's a just, good picture. I it promise. Is, <laughs> it is an absolute scream. It's like a, a visual scream of him leaving the mound after the seventh inning of just, I don't know if it's a release or if it's accomplishment or what, it, or if it's all of that, all but of it's, it. it's just like the most earned celebration. It's I like feel some vindication in that, that one photo you can see he's excited he's happy he's like so pumped up and he's like back to the ace that we always that we knew he was and he just kind of lost his way he got too too excited that one time before and now it's like this is okay and that's the thing i mean for as bad as he was in the wild card game and and i'm not being unduly harsh here he was very bad in the wild card game and he'll say that he was mm-hmm. very bad in the wild card game that's the thing about um, Seve. he's honest yeah, he was like he totally, i was terrible he totally earned <laughs> nothing <that spot>. worked <laughs> yeah he totally earned that spot i mean mm-hmm. it wasn't like you know eh, should we be pitching this guy in this spot like no severino was the guy to pitch in that spot of course um he was incredible during the season and i mean as incredible as he was during the season was you know as incredible how incredible he was in game four and that's you know how awful he was in the wild card game <laughs> you know you can yeah you can strike out and then hit a home run um, in your next at bat, or you know, you can make an error and then make a diving catch in your next at bat. But like the roller coaster of your worst professional moment to your best professional moment, 
I was talking to some people trying to find a comp, and basically the closest thing I guess that we could come up with would be like you know throwing what appears to be a game any interception, and then on your last chance throwing a hail mary for a touchdown, mm-hmm. and maybe that's even more crazy. Although you need a lot more help to do that yeah. on both sides. In this case, it, I, I I just don't think there are too many examples of that high coming right after that low in front of that many eyeballs. I think, yeah, I can't think of anything that would measure up to it. And Luis Severino has been charting uncharted territory since he, he's kind of come up. He was kind of record-breaking 2015, had that disaster in 2016, had this amazing 2017. And so these two games were kind of a microcosm of what Luis Severino has already been through. And big man himself, CC, said that exact thing. Like, and it's so true. It's just this game, or really these two games, were everything that he had been through in his career already. And here's a little, you know, how the sausage just made maybe. You, you know, I spent all this time in the Dominican talking to Sevi, and then after that, kind of trying to piece together, doing the research and watching the stuff. And I went down to spring training saying, okay, I just need to work around the margins here. And it's kind of hard to do that sometimes in a clubhouse because, the and I referred to this a little bit in the story, but the answers you're going to get in the clubhouse are, you know, he would have been fine. Everyone mm-hmm. has total faith in him. He would have been totally fine. Right. And I get why they do that, you know, and I, and I respect them for doing that. And I, I've done this long enough to know that I, I was not expecting someone to come in there and basically say like, oh man, he would have been totally screwed if he... <laughs> But, you know, I I was kind of really happy that I had the thought when I was watching game four because John Smoltz was on the broadcast. Yeah. And ironically, during the wild card game, Aaron Boone was on the broadcast. Mm -hmm. You know, Smoltz, as a former pitcher and a guy who's not afraid to give his opinion, I thought, you know, maybe he would, you know, be able to help me when kind of the players weren't able to. And he really was great. And he he basically just put it out there that it's the best thing that could have happened to him. And you can't speculate on what it would have been and you never know. But like now he has this knowledge inside him that he can get through the worst that anything that's going to happen on the mound he's been through worse than that and he overcame it and i thought that was really awesome awesome way to put it it's impossible to figure how a player overcomes something like this without the fact that you know okay it's just one start like you know like you said it's one start because there was another start right so. John, I thought it was awesome. I think you did a great job with the piece. Thanks, It's Hillary. called Up, Down, and Back Again. It's in the April issue of Yankees Magazine and the yearbook. And the yearbook. And the 2018 yearbook, which are on sale at Yankee Stadium starting opening day. Because it's baseball season. It's baseball season, guys. Oh, my God. I'm so excited. It's kind of crazy. Thanks, John. See you. Bye.